Welcome to Bamsey's Humanity First Podcast. I am Chris Ryan, along with the president and CEO of Bamsey, Peter Evers, for this week's edition of the show. And Peter, this week we're going to delve into stigma and the stigmas surrounding mental health. In your view, how far have we gotten in terms of addressing stigma as a country, a state, a region? And how much further do we have to go? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, um, hi, Chris, how are you doing? Um, I think, I think, you know, when we talk about uh, the progress that we've made in terms of mental health awareness and uh, reducing stigma, it's a little bit like the, the path of recovery. We're on it. We're beginning to make some good progress. Uh, but we have an awful long way to go, and our eyes have to be further up the arc of that recovery to uh, addressing some of the things that still exist in our society that are um, very prejudiced towards um, people with mental illness. But I think I, I'm just happy that we're having conversations like this. And, you know, you and I have been doing this for quite a few years now, but it's not unusual to turn on the radio uh, and hear about a, uh, a famous athlete who are talking about the stress of being in the spotlight. And that, of course, is mental illness. That plays into anxiety. It plays into depression. It plays into isolation. It plays into being away from your family. Uh, and of course, with COVID, we're experiencing that sort of on steroids at the moment across the board. So there is an odd thing about COVID. Maybe it's actually bringing to people the actual feelings that many people who struggle with this illness uh, in terms of isolation and loneliness uh, to the general population. And there's more understanding of that. Maybe that's an optimistic view of this pandemic, but people are understanding, I think more nowadays, that this is an illness and a disease and not a lifestyle choice. Yeah, so there's two key areas, actually three, that need to get um, addressed as we move towards stopping the the stigma and addressing mental health parity. One is... Um, in the uh, medical environment and allowing for there to be parity between physical and, and mental health. Um, the second piece is moving from talking about it to doing something about it. And, you know, I think that for, there's been a, for many years, people have talked about mental illness in different ways. They may not have understood they're talking about mental illness. They may not have understood the dynamics and and, and so forth that led to it, etc. But they they talked about it, um, whether it's from individuals serving in the military or you know um, uh, individuals who were working at home and were down about that, or um, housewives uh, and the challenges that they faced in the 1950s and um, you know on into uh, other generations as well. Um, so there's been a discussion of mental health, but the doing something about it has kind of been missing. And the third piece is on you know, society and how do we as society um, look at mental health and do we talk about, you know, being um, understanding and um, un- and being able to, you know, to address it in the workplace in a significant way. But are we actually doing it is is another piece. Right. Yeah. And I think that's the bridge we have to cross. Right. All of those things come together. I mean, I don't think you can do one without addressing all of them. And it's a big task. But, you know, the more people speak out, the more people acknowledge it, the more we normalize this as an illness. And I've said this before uh, to you, Chris, a lot of times. But, you know, our outcomes for chronic illnesses of bipolar disorder, of major depression, of uh, of those typical mental illness, the outcomes are better than all other chronic diseases, 
better than diabetes, for instance, which doesn't necessarily have the stigma. And I think it's a, a, a sort of talking about that in terms of this isn't something that is going to impact your life negatively forever. It may be a disease you manage forever, but the things you can do, and this illness doesn't define you. It's just part of who you are. All right, so that is Peter Evers. I am Chris Ryan. I'm going to hand things over now to Peter, who's going to introduce today's guest. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Humanity First. We have a very special guest this morning uh, on the program, Teresa Belson, who is the VP of our adult services on the behavioral health community service side. Welcome, Teresa. Thank you for having me. So, you know, we have been sort of having discussions across the agency about different programs, and we're very happy to have you on today to talk about um, the about the residential services that you provide, but also the clubhouse services and some of the other day programs. And, you know, one of the things that strikes me over the years, and if you look at the last decade, I would say there's been more change in the mental health world than there has been perhaps in the past 50 to 100 years. And what I mean by that is this notion of recovery, this idea of transformational work that we do in behavioral health and mental health, as opposed to maintaining people in their illness. And a big part of that, if you ask me, and I know and I know for a fact that you believe this as well, that a lot of that has happened because of the entry of people with lived experience into the field. This idea that there are, I always think about it like the three legs of a stool, there's the person, there's the, there's the expertise from the training and the professionals, and then an equal stool leg is those people who have been on that journey and who are, who are willing to uh, share their experience, their hope and their aspirations and their triumphs with people who might uh, be in a more acute phase uh, of, the, of their illness at the beginning of recovery, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I know that means a lot to you, Teresa, and, um, and, and I know that rings a bell with you, but how does that actually happen and how does that manifest itself? And that's, you know, that, that's the sort of thing I'm interested in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and thank you for asking, because I do feel like it's so important and it's one of the best kept secrets um, in the field. So um, little by little, the different programs that you mentioned um, have been required to you know, have a peer specialist or somebody with lived experience. Uh, for example, our, our largest um, program, ACCS, which is um, Adult Community Clinical Services, uh, it's a combination of residential services and you know, providing um, support for people who live on their own in the community. And um, it's part of the program that we have um, either a family partner and or certified peer specialist or recovery coach. So, you know, that's a program that's funded by the Department of Mental Health. They thought it was important enough, you know, to put it as part of the program because it is part of the recovery model. Um, so, you know, the, the folks who have the lived experience, whether the recovery coaches or peer specialists, I mean, I can't say enough about how they help our person served providing direct services because they can connect, you know, in a little bit of a different way than maybe I can. And, um, and what they really do is help staff understand maybe, you know, what our individuals are going through, what they might be thinking, you know, try to think of things in a different perspective, um, especially around, you know, motivating them to, you know, take care of themselves or go to work. Um, you know, 
I've been in lots of treatment team meetings where the peer specialist will just say something very simple like, you know, I think he's just afraid. He hasn't been out in the workforce in 20 years and he's just not sure. And it's looking like real ambivalence because it is. So the, the, um, the folks that we have working in the different programs that have lived experience, again, they're so helpful to the staff to help them understand and to bridge that gap a little bit. Yeah, and, and I think the other thing is you just, you just sort of reflected on one way that that, that works, i.e., you know, a different perspective of how and a reflection back of how somebody might be feeling that you wouldn't think, think of. But I think the other thing that I've witnessed in both residential and community um, work is that the folks with lived experience relate to, and you, and you did talk about this a little bit, but relate to our person served in a totally different way. They completely understand the journey. And sometimes having, having that perspective is in equal doses the, 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 you know, the remedy or the cure in terms of somebody beginning their, their own personal journey of recovery. Yeah, I mean, if, you know, a lot of our folks are sort of isolated and, you know, don't have a lot of support. And so when they meet somebody that, you know, again, has been working for us for 10 years full time that, you know, talks about um, their life story that they might have been at the same place, you know, that they were many hospitalizations, you know, going to day program every day trying to meet your goals, you know, being nervous about getting out in the workforce and that type of thing. You know, it's, it's um, again, like you said, somebody that they can connect with, that they know, understand what they've gone through. And it, again, just in a different way than maybe some of the other staff can. It works so well. And um, with the, the recovery coaches are a little bit of a, a newer addition to the program. And again, for our folks who have issues with substances and, and alcohol, um, that is really helpful. And of course, AA has been doing peer support for many, many years. So um, again, great additions to the program. I want to talk a little bit about stigma. And uh, Teresa and I have been working behind the scenes and are readying a, a campaign which is going to focus on stopping the stigma for Mental Health Awareness Month, which is May. And you know, to me, this is a very important conversation because we have made tremendous strides, in my view, in mental health and the discussion of mental health, having you know, political figures, athletes, uh, musicians, friends, neighbors, all having a conversation about mental health is so significant. But in my view, we've only gone about like 20% of the way. And there's like 80% of the way that's still to go in order to create parity between mental and physical health. And, you know, I'm curious from, from both of your perspectives, uh, what can be done in order to try to address the issue of stigma? Because we can talk about how, you know, mental health is important and have that conversation, but that stigma still exists. If I had mental health breakdown this weekend and, you know, was crying in the bathroom and uh, despondent, I'm probably not going to come into work and tell people about it on Monday. If I... You know, uh, went skiing and uh, tore my MCL. I'm probably going to talk about it a lot. And mm -hmm. to me, that is something that is prevalent, that is real. And, you know, we just don't want to, to talk about it. When we talk about mental health, we sort of talk about it. Um, you know, I struggle with depression, anxiety. But what does that mean? I'm not mm -hmm. going to get too much into the personal story 
of that um, because of the fear of the ramifications of it. So in, in your view, um, and both of you, how far are we in really addressing stigma and how do we take the next steps in order to create parity? Mm. Teresa, do you want to start that? Great question. Yeah, I mean, trying to fight against stigma has been around for many, many years, and it does seem very slow, the awareness. Um, I kind of wonder, like, what with what you're saying, you know, celebrities coming out with different things um, is helpful. I also wonder if um, the pandemic has helped, been helpful in a way, too, because there are so many more needs in the mental health area and people are, you know, um, reaching out and it's becoming a little bit more of a common, um, you know, conversation. Um, it, you know, it's, it's probably a several pronged approach, like many issues when you want to tackle it, it's probably, um, you know, at, you know, at the local level, when you're working, anybody you're working with or coming in contact that you're trying to help them understand, um, you know, what a mental illness is and, and, you know, the challenges that people face as well as, um, you know, what you've been talking about, Chris, as far as some, a, a bigger campaign and really just putting it out there, like, you know, this is what we believe and this is what we want people to, to understand and to know about. I, I don't know why it, it takes so long, but I think again, probably things in the news, you know, you hear about school shootings and things like that. And the first thing they say is that, you know, somebody has health issues, which probably of, of course they do, but the reverse is not true. Just because somebody has a mental illness doesn't mean they're violent. So um, that that's a tough one. Yeah, yeah. Peter on that, um, repercussions in society, uh, I think are one of the biggest issues why we don't ha uh, talk about stigma. Teresa makes, brings up a good point. Um, you know, to, when mental illness is talked about in the public forum, it's very often talked about in the most extreme circumstances, an individual that is, um, you know, schizophrenic and homeless, an individual that um, you know, suffers from mental illness and goes on a shooting rampage. And so people don't want that association. Professional people don't want that uh, association. And there is not a level of comfort in being honest about what mental illness is because there's a fear of, of repercussions in any organization. I'm sure there's individuals within our own organization that aren't going to talk openly about their mental health. Because, and we are a mental, an organization that cares for um, mental health. Peter. Yeah, I mean, I think, wow, how do you unpack that? I think that's one of the most complicated um, discussions that we can possibly have in this field. And I think, um, you know, there's some days where you think you're making great progress and then you get a setback where, you know, you have one of these shootings and then the then um, president just immediately says, we've got to put more money into mental health, which of course we haven't been doing for the last three generations. But how do you argue that? I mean, I argue it by saying the most danger, the person in most danger in a mental illness is themselves. Because if they're going to use a, a gun, the majority of time, it's going to be on themselves and they're going to be males. And we know that females kill themselves in different ways and there's different ways of interacting with that. But, you know, when you think about it, I, I heard one of my uh, children's, of course, my children's in, in their 20s now, but one of them were having this discussion and they said, and they didn't really know what field I was in. It was like, yeah, my therapist was saying this to me the other day. And it just struck, it was just one little sentence that made me think, 
be, that's really helpful. That is absolutely normal that somebody would say, my therapist gave me this, this uh, advice. My generation would never, ever have done that. On the same, on the other side of the coin, I've worked in emergency rooms for most of my life. And it, I don't know how much has changed then in terms of a ER doc calling and saying, I've got one of yours here, or there's a bipolar in five. Or, you know, there's a major depression, I wouldn't use that expression, but there's, you know, and then the language that we use every day is something that we need to pay attention to. You know, it is the last bastion of, prevet, uh, of acceptable prejudice now using some of those words, which again, people in high office have done. This work will never stop, I don't think. But when you look at campaigns that, um, that you and I have been involved in in, uh, in the past, Chris, like the campaign to change direction, mm -hmm. those are, those are concerted efforts to normalize and to have conversations. It begins with a conversation with a loved one, with a friend, with somebody in the bar. You know, when we, when we did this training on Nantucket years ago, we trained barkeepers uh, around recognizing um, issues of mental, of mental illness. That's how deeply we have to get into this conversation. And you're right, I don't think it'll ever end, but that doesn't mean to say there aren't plenty of people up for the fight yeah i think that there is just you know as you mentioned there has been great progress in that individuals are talking more about uh about mental health they're talking more about mental illness and, and their therapists and etc but there's just certain there's certain lines that are not going to be crossed at this point because there just is not that comfort you know as an example on a show like this, there would at times be conversation about if there was cancer in the family or if there was a, have you lost a loved one because of a heart attack or things of that nature. But no one's going to ask about suicide. No one's going to ask if there's, um, if you've had suicidal thoughts. Um, it's a too personal of a, of a question. And if personal means private, and if we keep all our thoughts and everything in, in private, then it becomes uh, something that we feel that it's individualized to ourselves, where if things get brought into an open setting, that commonality breeds more discussion about what's taking place. Chrissy Teigen, um, I thought, did something that was huge on social media when she talked openly, continues to talk openly about um, her miscarriage, which brings about severe psychological trauma for um, particularly the mother, but uh, the father you know, as well. Those types of things don't really get discussed um, very often, the ramifications of that. You know, at times things will come up and we'll be like, oh, yeah, this happened. But we won't say, well, what's been the effect of that on you? Um, we keep a lot of things internalized. And when it becomes internalized, we become isolated. And as Peter has mentioned many times before, we are social creatures as human beings. The question always is, though, what is appropriate? What are the ramifications? What is the risk involved with making, you know, those those steps? And, you know, in many other realms in health, there is no risk associated with being honest about what's taking place, about pain that you are suffering, physical pain that you are suffering. Mental pain, there is and a significant risk that is still associated with any real discussion about that. And that's one of the, you know, the focuses of um, the campaign that uh, Bamsey is going to engage in is to have, you know, real conversations with real people in order to show the public, members of our organization and kids that it's so important to engage in a dialogue. 
And you don't want to force people to do things that they're uncomfortable doing just because it's for the greater good, quote unquote, but for individuals to find their level of comfort in, in discussing things, Teresa. Yeah. Um, and, and you bring up such good points. Um, you know, a lot of us get into this field because we have either our own personal experience or family members, friends, and it interests us. And so um, there's a lot of, um, you know, unsaid, I guess, types of things. And, and we're trained as, as uh, mental health therapists really not to cross that boundary. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and that again, you know, hasn't changed all that much. So for somebody like me or somebody's therapist or other people to be coming out and say things, it really kind of goes against the grain of, again, how we've been taught and how the field is right now. And that's why I, I feel like, again, you know, the peer folks that lived experience, they have, they're so brave in telling their stories over and over um, that are very painful. Um, but again, like you said, you know, you keep things in, nobody knows about them. And so when you can get things out in the air and talk about them, they are absolutely helpful. So. I think the pain go, I'm not gonna say it goes away, but I think it, it helps the pain to seek commonality with others and mm -hmm. to try to, to help others because the pain for most is sitting around and thinking about how they're weird or they're different or they're suffering pain that no one else is suffering or can understand. And then when you make that step, which is kind of like, you know, bungee jumping, you take that step off of the uh, the platform and you trust your equipment. That's kind of what it is, I think. And I think that there there is, you know, there are people that are going to judge you when you do that. There are people that are going to, you know, stigmatize you and do that. But guess what? They were doing that anyway. <laughs> so they were, people are going to do that. People are going to say things. They're going to do things. They're going to talk about you. Um, and you find out, hey, I have I don't have to just kind of sit and worry about this. I have people that can help me. Peer support to me is the most powerful um, thing that can take place in order to help individuals through mental illness and addiction, to find commonality and so that you don't think that you're just alone or you're just alone and isolated, Peter. Yeah, there's nothing more um, comforting than hearing that your stress and your pain is served by is is felt by other people and you can have a conversation with those people but the thing about peers that's even better is that they've been through that journey and those folks who are struggling with the diseases of despair can look at those people and say wow that person was here and look where they are now they're now and so many people who are in recovery from behavioral health disorders want to give back. That's the other wonderful thing about this population that defines them. They, their journey is never complete. Recovery is never complete. And the arc of recovery is different for every human being, but they're in a position where they want to help other people. And, and, and I hear that so often, Teresa, I'm sure you do as well. It's like, okay, and this is true in, in addiction as well. Okay, that's my journey. How can I help the next person? How can I pay this forward? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, another program that I wanted to mention is the Southeast Recovery Learning Community. BMZ has a center in Brockton. We have for several years and that's all peer run. So the manager is somebody with lived experience and she runs the program. Um, again, 
pre-pandemic, they offered group support and, and a drop-in center. Now they are connecting with folks over the phone and um, getting onto Zoom and that type of thing. So um, again, they, they just work tirelessly. They'll, you know, they support people um, every day through the phone. Um, and it's a, it's a small community that they say, you know, we're not clinicians, we're just here to, you know, to help you. And so um, it's a great program. People can walk in, you can give your first name, you know, you don't have to fill out a bunch of papers and assessments. It's just people helping people. And, and uh, yeah, you're right. They're just, they're, they're so happy to do it. It's a great program. I think that, you know, that's been around for 10 years or so. Um, and I remember when that was rolled out and I remember thinking the same thing, the Department of Mental Health is putting money aside for peers to run their own organization. That is a transformational moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I do have a story that I've, I've told a couple of times, but um, uh, my one of my first jobs, so when I first got out into the field, I was in a different state and um, they used peers quite a bit and they decided to have a peer run. They didn't call it a crisis unit, but it was something like that. So, um, and it was located literally in the same building right next door to the crisis unit that, you know, everybody's used to. And, you know, lo and behold, you know, people wanted to go to the peer run, um, you know, place that they, that they could go when they were trying to stabilize or, you know, they were in some sort of crisis. And then the more traditional medical model unit, um, you know, sort of decreased attendance. So again, it, just another example of how powerful it is and that people connect to that type of thing rather than maybe sometimes, you know, traditional services. Yeah. In conclusion, I want to ask both of you about um, mental health in the COVID environment and in particular, what type of resources are being made available to address what is a significant need in that uh, more and more folks are reaching out and saying, I need help. Um, but it seems that there's less and less individuals to give that, um, that help uh, and the need is increasing. Um, how are we addressing that from an organizational perspective, A, and B, what are we seeing in terms of resources coming from the, the state and you know, federal government still kind of work being worked out what's going to be included in this most recent um, relief package, uh, which is moving its way through Congress, the $1.9 trillion package. So two questions there for, for both of you. Um, A, uh, what do we need as an organization? Are we you know falling behind in meeting the needs of the, the mental health of our community because of the lack of, of staff or resources? And, and B, what has been the commitment we've seen from the state and, and federal government? I guess, Teresa, do the the first one and Peter, the second one. Um, well, I feel like um, for the folks that we are already serving, uh, we're doing our best to kind of fill in the gaps and, and meet their needs. Um, for folks, you know, that I mentioned before, like a lot of the people that have, you know, mental illness that we work with, they're so isolated and this pandemic has made them even more isolated because they're maybe not getting out to day program. You know, maybe they are connecting by phone, but a lot of folks, you know, don't have the Wi-Fi or don't have the capacity to get on a Zoom where they can see people and that type of thing. So, um, you know, we're just doing our best to, to, you know, be creative and, 
you know, connect with them um, as well as we can. Even folks who live in the residential programs, you feel like, well, they they are with other people, but it's not it it's um, it's not the same as if they can go out and see their family, or they can go out and do the social activities, or they can go out to their day program. Um, so we are doing the best, doing our best as far as the community. I don't know if Peter has, um, you know, more to say about that, but we have, you know, um, definitely increased things like, you know, anytime something comes along and it's an extra um, service, like, you know, delivering the food, that type of thing. Again, we're just being creative and saying, you know, we want to, we want to get right to that. So like our clubhouse, when they were closed for a little bit and now they're open and they can't take as many people during the day. So not as many people can take, you know, participate in the services, but they're packing up lunches and delivering out to folks just to be able to, again, see them, even if it's just for a few minutes and having, you know, giving them a brown bag lunch type of thing. So it's just kind of being creative and listening to folks and what they need and then just trying something new. Yeah, and those guys come to the food drive as well. They've been coming every month, which is great. And they help pack up the food there as well. So yeah, we always, yeah. always love to see them. Um, I think, you know, regards to the state and the feds, I guess I'd say B minus, you know, when you look at what kind of help we had. I think originally we got some really nice help with the with the uh, sustainable, the um, additional 15% uh, that we got for residential but, you know, we've been a little bit in the wilderness ever since there, and we do worry about, we, we run around 50,000 a month in um, uh, PPE, in protective equipment, um, and that's a big drain, uh, and we can't not provide that. Um, so we, we could do with some more, and I do look forward, Chris, to, you know, some more financial relief for agency like ours in the 1.9 billion, um, what is it? Is it 1.9 trillion? Trillion. I get mixed up with these people. When it, when, when it becomes a billion, I lose count. <laughs> but um, but I do look forward to that. And, and hopefully they'll take care of some of the vital services that we're providing. Well, Teresa, Peter, that was great. We appreciate your time. Uh, Teresa, thanks so much. Uh, keep up the good work and uh, look forward to working with you on our Stop the Stigma campaign. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank That's you, Teresa. Bye. That is Teresa Belson, along with Peter Evers. I am Chris Ryan. Thanks so much for joining us for Humanity First, BAMSI's podcast. Mm-hmm.